Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Kelly Stewart. Hi, and welcome to episode 14 of the Think Orphan podcast, where we seek to help you navigate the orphan crisis with experts from around the world. Phil, we have a fascinating story today from um, our guests. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we were able to uh, sit down with Daniel Kagwa, who is the pastor of Sign of the Dove Church in Kampala, Uganda. And as you said, he has a story that um, it really is a story that encompasses and it shows a lot of the facets of the orphan crisis all in one story. And we did it in two parts um, because he really tells his story and how he got to where he is today in the first part. And the second part, he really shares with us how his story informs the work he's doing in the ministry God has put in his life, the work God is doing through him. And so it's an amazing story about how God has worked in a life that could have been so different um, with just a couple different things happening. Um, And he's used that life in amazing ways to really impact orphaned and vulnerable children um, in Uganda, but elsewhere as well. So I'm without going into too much detail because I want you to hear it from him. Uh, this story is is great, and as I said, it will be two parts. So we're going to leave you hanging a little bit today, but uh, you'll hear it next week. The rest of the the rest of the story is as they say. Sounds good. Let's get to it. Well, Daniel, it's great to have you with us here today. Thank you. It's my pleasure also to be part of what the Lord is doing uh, all over the world, and uh, thank you for hosting me. Well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited for, uh, for the folks out there to, to hear your story and to hear what God's doing in and through you. And on that note, why don't you just share a little bit um, about how you got to be where you are today and what God's done in your life? Uh, it is, I would just say that it's the passion of the Lord that the Lord put upon my heart. Uh, depending on the way that I was raised up. I was raised up in a dysfunctional family. My father and f- my mother separated when I was too young at the age of eight. And then uh, I just happened to find myself in uh, in all these kind of problems. Then my father uh, got married another wife who was my stepmom uh, by that time. And then uh, I just happened to to live with her in the house. And then uh, uh, that's how life started up uh, from the age of eight until the age of 10. And then I really felt like I could not live with my stepmom because she abused us. And then all my other brothers and sisters had to run away out of our house. And then I had to remain in the house. But eventually I also had to, uh, I also had to go away because it was too much on me. And then I could not uh, be able to, uh, uh, I mean, I couldn't be able to leave that because I had too much pressure on me. So I went, lived with my grandmother from the age of 10 to 12, who was also one of the poorest in our community that the poorest could also call us poor. And then uh, she couldn't even afford to take care of me in the uh, for the two years that uh, I stayed in her house and then uh, she was so poor that we had nothing even at home and in that one bedroom the house where 
we were staying. Uh, so life was very hard. Life was so pressing. Life was so demanding uh, that uh, I need, did not even have anything to sleep on. Mm. Uh, apart from the only one dress that my grandmama used to have, she could put it on during daytime and then she could cover me that dress in the night. And then she could then cover me uh, in the morning, probably around 5 a.m. And then she could put it on to be able to go in the field and then be able to make a work and then uh, be able to get something to eat for a day. So that's how life was until when I was 12. Then I felt like I could not do it anymore. I, I felt like uh, life was too much and too demanding. Then I had to go and make my own way of living. So I started living by myself at the age of 12. And then I became a man by the age of 12 hmm. by renting my own house, which was like probably five to six or six to six feet, which was a very small house. And then I lived in that house, having no mattress, having no blanket, having nothing. And sometimes it's very hard to explain to someone what I really went through or what some people go through. Uh, because, uh, I mean, to some other people, it is just like a dream. Mm -hmm. But to us, it is a reality because we have been there and then uh, we we have gone through that. So age of 12, I was living by myself. I had to pay for my school fees. I had to pay for each and everything to be able to go to school. And at the same time, I had to, to work to get ways of getting money by doing every kind of job uh, in my community to, to to take care of myself and there's some time to go to school. So that is how life was until mm. when uh, at the age of 14, I really felt like I could live no more. And then uh, the devil told me to commit suicide. And then that was going to be my second attempt to commit suicide. And uh, at this time, uh, I was at school in high school, but uh, it was demanding a lot as a high schooler. Uh, I really needed a lot. I needed to concentrate. I needed to get money. I needed to work. I needed to get food. I needed to get books and all, and each and every time. And I needed to get time off, which I couldn't do because I was in high school. So the devil told me that the best thing for you to do is to commit suicide. Mm. And then uh, I, I really felt like, uh, like it was going to benefit me because I was going to rest uh, for the rest of my life. And then uh, uh, I planned everything. The spirit of death covered me up and then uh, got ready to commit suicide on that day. I went back home. I gave out everything that I had. Uh, I mean, just almost nothing in my house. I gave them out and then I went to school. No, did not even went into my class because the spirit of death had covered me up to commit suicide and uh, wait for every student to get out of the school and they really went out of the school. But I never knew that Jesus had loved me so much that he was not even late to be under the mango tree where I was going to commit suicide from. Only to find out that uh, all students had gone away, thought that it was my right time to commit suicide, got my rope out of my bag. And as I was going to, uh, to commit suicide, then another student showed up by the names of Richard. Then Richard told me that, Daniel, what are you trying to do? Hmm. I told him that I was going to commit suicide. And then he told him that, no, Daniel, don't need to commit suicide. You need Jesus. Hmm. And then uh, after hearing those words, I almost felt like, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it real. Uh, uh, I got hold of that word and it struck me down. And then I really felt like God was speaking to me. So I asked him, 
what do you want me to do? He told me that you need to confess. Then I confess. I confessed all my sins. And then he led me into the prayer of salvation. But lastly, I told him that, Richard, after all this, I have no house. I have no mm-hmm. home. I have nowhere to go. He told me that, uh, Daniel, uh, let me go and talk to my dad. So we went with him. We reached to the house. Then he talked with his dad. And then uh, that's when I saw his dad coming up and uh, telling me that, Daniel, uh, you are going to be one of our sons in this house. And that was my first time to hear that kind of statement. And uh, he told me that just feel free to come into our house, eat whatever you want to eat, put on whatever you want to put on. You are our son. You are not, uh, I mean, you are not a stranger in this house. Let this be your family. And I really felt good to hear those type of statements. But even if he said it, I could not believe in him because I really doubted what he said. But uh, sooner or later, I came to realize that this family had Jesus uh, living together with them. And it was a Christian, powerful family that they had to take me to church. They introduced me to their church where they used to go to. And then they allowed me to sleep on one of the beds, which was a bunk bed. They told Richard that today you are not going to sleep on the bunk bed. Let Daniel sleep on the bunk bed. And they, I had to sleep on the mattress. I had to sleep on uh, uh, bed sheets. I had to sleep on a blanket for my first time in life. Wow. And then they allowed me to share on every meal that they had sitting on the same, you know, table dining and then right. eating up together, going into the refrigerator, picking up whatever I needed in life mm-hmm. and allowing me also to put on Richard's clothes and shoes because I never had enough. I right. never had clothes, but they told Richard, let Daniel be putting on your clothes. And then that kind of love, mm-hmm. that kind of love uh, that they demonstrated uh, was uh, was a sign to me uh, that uh, uh, that uh, this family had um, was a Christian family. So and, let me just, yeah. just pick up there just real quick. Mm-hmm. So the day that you were basically feeling at the lowest, you were feeling like I got to in my life, yep. God put someone in your heart that not only told you the truth and said, you need Jesus, but he mm-hmm. basically, I mean, for all intents and purposes, kind of became Jesus to you and mm-hmm. his family did as well. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yep. I, yeah, yeah, that's, I can say that that was the power of redemption. Mm-hmm. I real saw Jesus through him. So I, I, yeah, I was redeemed by Christ through Richard. Yeah. And so he was able to just really, God put that into your life at the tree where you're going to end your life instead of a tree of death, it became a tree of life for you effectively. Right. And, right. And then, That's awful. so from there, you basically were brought into this family, like you said, really feeling that love for the first time, um, feeling that ability to be part of this family for the first time in your life, as you said, really, mm-hmm. even though you had a family before, it really didn't have that same love. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. I had my parents by that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, one thing that I can recall, uh, even now about our dad is whenever he could come home, he was like a lion. I mean, I mean, you could just run under, you could just hide away. You could just, you, you know, no time to talk, no time to say anything. You, you could just run and hide anywhere because whenever he could 
come home, we could feel like, I wish you had not come today. I wish you could spend a week without coming back home. So I don't know how he was made, but that was his nature. So he was very fearful. And then uh, all children could be silenced whenever we could see him coming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I had never seen him. Are telling us that uh, Daniel, you are my child. I love you. Mm. I'm here for you. Uh, uh, what do you need in life so that I can stand together with you and be able to be a blessing to you? Mm. And I never heard my father telling me that uh, uh, this is what you need to do to to become uh, what you need to be in life. And uh, the only thing I can recall is beating us and then, you know, uh, kicking us and then slapping us and then be abusive. He was very abusive even to my mom that even now I, I, I can even recall the screaming of my mom screaming mm. every night, being beaten in the bedroom every night. So that's the kind of life. So when yeah. I went, when well, I connected to this other family, I never saw that. I only saw Christ in them. And I only saw that kind of love that everything was done in a way that I even never thought of uh, in life. So it was a shock to me to see these two different families, uh, you know, uh, are doing or, or I mean, uh, these two two different families, they were just contrary, mm-hmm. according to, yeah, to my understanding. So my biological family and the family where I was yeah. fostered into. But because of Christ in this family, I believe that Jesus had to, sh- uh, he has sharpened them and then he made them a great family. Mm. And not only their own family, but also a great family for me. Right. And so you yeah. went into that family and you were there just for a short time, right? I was there for three months. Yeah. And then uh, the dad, adopted dad, had sugar diabetes and uh, probably had blood pressure. So he, he was doing his business. And then when he was in his business, he he really became sick just one day, not even a day, but he had an attack. Then they came to school and told us that he that he was dead. And then, uh, I mean, I, I saw like the world turned upside down. I saw mm-hmm. darkness at that particular time. But I never realized, even if all happened, I never realized that I was to be rejected and be left in the house alone. So after his death, I thought that life was going to continue because the adopted, uh, the adopted mom was still around and she really loved me so much. So I thought that life was going to continue as usual. Uh, only to go into the village for burial. Coming back from the burial, we, uh, that was like a week. Uh, then after coming back, the, the, the clan mates, uh, or the tribe mates had already made up some plans of dividing all the children, taking them into different families. And then the six children were divided into different families. And then uh, uh, that is when I came to realize uh, that I had no one to take me in because all I was not known in that family. And then no one was concerned about me. So they saw me as uh, someone uh, that they didn't know of. And taking all the other six, then I was left in the house alone. And then uh, the devil told me that now see, this is the right time for you to commit suicide again, because we told you to do that. And now see that you have been rejected, you have been left, you have been abandoned, no one cares about you, and see that you are now in the house alone. And I, I actually was also about to do that, 
but I thank God that the spirit of the Lord within my within me spoke the word that I will never even forget in my life that he spoke and he said that Daniel, he spoke in my native language. He told me that Daniel do not commit suicide. Go to your grandmother's place. So I had that voice within me and uh, I, I went to my grandmother's place and uh, yeah, so I walked seven miles away from there and then I went back to her house. So she was gladly to receive me back home. Mm-hmm. And then uh, uh, being abandoned, rejected, and then depressed, oppressed, you know, feeling all this kind of uh, uh, bitterness and everything. So she received me so well. She was so lovely. So she received me back into the house. That was Friday evening. Saturday, I was there. Sunday, she saw me having my Bible Mm. going to the church. And she told me that you cannot go to the church. She was not a Christian. Mm. She told me you cannot go to the church. I told, I asked her why. Then she told me that if you go to that church, you will not be able to be in my house. Remember, I had just been reconnected into uh-huh. her family again, two days. Then the third day she had to, I, I had to make a decision right away. And I thought as a child that uh, probably she was joking. So I went to church thinking that probably when I come back, she will have mass upon me. And she meant what she spoke. So coming back, I, I just found my uh, plastic bag outside with some of my few clothes that I had got. And then she kicked me out of the house wow. again. So she told me, I told you uh, either to go to the church or to stay in the house. So I made up my mind. I said, surely I've been raised up by myself. I cannot deny that Jesus that I had speak to me, telling me to come here. And I cannot even deny that Jesus said that I rescued me, redeemed me under that mango tree. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I decided to to go for Jesus than, than to remain in the house. Wow. So what did you do then? Yeah, life became so hard for me. But God made a way right after there. Uh, as I was standing by the veranda of the house, someone just came in who was doing some business. And then he asked me, uh, he came and told me that, Daniel, I heard that you, are, you have not been around for some time and ABCD. Then I told him, yeah. Then he told me that, but I'm here. I'm going for for my business uh, to do my kind of sales. Would you please help me and stay in my house? So he asked me to go and stay in his house. And then uh, he gave me the keys of his house. And then I went to his house. <laughs> so going, going for his business, he had probably planned it to go for a week, but he ended up finding no business there and he had to wait for like three months. And then by the time he came back, I had already planned, I had already worked and saved my money to start my other life. Hmm. So that is how the Lord made a way right away under, uh, I mean, right by the veranda where immediately after my grandma right. kicked me out, Less than 10, 30 minutes, probably, I had someone to take me in his house hmm. as a guard just to help him keep his house because he was not going to be around. But that was my best time the Lord set before me to be able to stay there for that period of time, to be able to save money and then get another house to rent. Hmm. Yeah. It's just amazing. Now, and then, I mean, God just took you on another adventure there soon thereafter, right? You, you went to. Rwanda at some point as a teenager, and that really impacted you in ways that uh, has brought you to the work you're doing today. Is that right? 
Right. Yeah. From there, my church had, had to do a mission in Rwanda after the genocide of 1994, where over a million people were killed in this genocide. And then my church uh, had to go in because the, it's a missionary-minded church. Mm-hmm. And then I was among the people to go, and I had the passion to go. And uh, I really wanted to to help those who could not help themselves. I really wanted to be the advocate. And uh, uh, I went to, to, to that mission. It was meant to be a short-term mission. And uh, uh, I real uh, I ended up uh, being there for over five years, <laughs> and uh, I never wanted to come back because there there was a lot of work to do, mostly to help the orphans and the children, the refugees, getting them from different countries around. Because many people went ran away from the country, and they they took refugees in the neighboring countries like uh, Congo, Burundi, Tanzania, and Uganda. So major of my uh, part of my work was to go and we rescue those children and then bring them into orphanage centers where i used to work with james robinson uh the one leading jesus for life uh and i know life of uh uh friends for life yeah so 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 he was doing a ministry uh, in rwanda by that time and i was under his ministry for over five years hmm. and you met your wife yeah. during that time right yeah, my wife came in as a child, and then I interviewed her, and then um, uh, I'm, I'm the one who interviewed her, actually, then wrote down all her uh, you, you know, biography, and then she told me of her story, how her parents were being killed and how she saw them being killed, and then her story was very much touching, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many children, I, I, I met thousands of children that I wrote down their stories, but her story was very touching to me. It really shook me up. And then she was in the orphanage center where I was also working as a missionary for five years. And then she was also there for probably five to six years. And then I never knew that at the end of the day that she would be my wife. And uh, being in that orphanage center, a time came that they had to let go all the children who were above 17 because they did not have enough support for them. So having let them go, uh that also created uh you you know some wounds on her heart and then uh, she went away and then i also had to get rid of uh, the missionary work i had to come back to uganda and then after some time i had to go back to chigali to rwanda uh to catch up with some other few things that i i was doing there only to find her uh in uh, in one of the towns where i went so I asked her, Erica, what is taking place? Where are you living? And how are things? So she told me her story. Then I went to somebody who had brought her into a family who was a, a family friend before their parents died. So then uh, we started right from there. And then uh, I picked up an interest in her. And then she also picked up some interest because we had the <laughs> same passion. And then we shared about that. But one of the things that I will never forget that in, during our courtship time, she told me that she would never leave home. She would never live in, be in a house without orphans. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, I was like, <laughs> how shall we be able to make this? Because life was very hard. It was right. so pretty. Yeah, we, uh, we, uh, it was on a voluntary work. I was not, we were not being paid. And then, uh, you know, whatever was being got was something very small to upkeep, just to keep you, uh, you know, going 
uh, do your personal, you know, little things. So I had nothing in life. And then she also had nothing as a young orphan. And uh, telling me that she really wanted to live with the orphans, I really felt like it would probably not be possible. But I had that passion and she had the passion. Right. And then she meant what she spoke. And at the end of the day, we, we, we got married. And then uh, I came to Uganda. And then uh, coming to Uganda, we went to one mission. Uh, we went for, for, for a, a conference in one of the places. And she's the wife who will be asking every child she meets on the way, where are you coming from? Is your father there? Is your mother there? Are you an orphan? And then I could sometimes ask her that, Erica, what, why are you asking all these questions to, <laughs> to these children? And then she's like, yeah, I cannot live in the house without children. And surely for the last 17 years that we've been together, 18 years now, we've never lived uh, in a house without children. And then she went there, she picked up some children who were orphans and then she wanted to bring them home but we were living in a one-bedroom house then she told me that she was going to come home with them and i told her that you cannot bring all these children because we don't have even anywhere to put them even we are struggling with our two biological children and we don't even have food for them we have no clothes for them and you are bringing in 15. but she said that yeah i will bring them in the lord will make a way for them and uh, it was very hard to convince her. She started crying and then she cried, but I convinced her, told her, let's go back home, plan for them, and then we shall come back and pick them up. And then it's what we did. After that, we are like two weeks after that, she was always on my neck. Let's go and get the children back. Let's go and get the children back. But we, we had not even shifted mm -hmm. to move from that house to go to any other house because we never had money. And she was always like, we shall have them here. We shall have them in one bedroom house. But to me, it was like, it was too much. So we had to go and rent another house, which was a big, very big house, uh, even for our income, because we did not even have any income. But we believed God for that. And then we brought them in. And then I saw her peace. And then I saw her mind. And then I saw her joy uh, for the first time, having all these children in the house all together and it was it was an experience yeah it was an experience and so what you so with those kids you know you you have a bunch of kids obviously you weren't just going out and picking up kids on the street you were doing some sort of you, you found out they didn't have families they didn't have someone to care for them is that right and then you brought them into their home because of that Right. Yeah. yeah. And, mm -hmm. and then with that, as you brought them into your home, um, you didn't just say, okay, well, we're just going to have a uh, open door for whoever and as many kids as possibly could come. You had an end game on the other side of that as well. Right. As far as your church and getting these kids into other homes. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so yeah, tell that's me right. about that. Tell, tell us about that. What, what, is, what did that look like as far as when you bring these kids into your home and, and you then go into your church and share this need with your church and did they immediately embrace it? No, having these children took us some time. We brought them in. We, the first thing we told the church that please the church, we have these children here, but they have no mattresses. They have nothing to sleep on. They have no clothes. So people in our church, by that time, the church was very small. We, we really had like just very few people. And then uh, people were also very poor. My church is a very poor people. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, they have no jobs. They have nothing. And uh, what uh, happened by that time is that uh, people gave us some donations, mattresses, torn mattresses, 
torn clothes, but it's what they had. You know, they gave with all their hearts, uh, like this woman who gave in a button. They, I, I, I mean, they only had that, and it's what they gave in. And uh, uh, being with those children, uh, eventually we came to learn to to get to know about uh, biblical adoption and foster care. So by this time, remember that we have this house. We have no sponsors. Mm-hmm. Because we never opened up a house for these children expecting sponsors. We never had them. So we only believed in God as our sponsor. And then uh, we we shared this and uh, people gave us the little they had. And then some other people brought in money. And then we are able to start feeding these children, which was not something big, uh, something small. But at the end of the day, we had to pay uh, for the rent. We had to pay for the utility. We had to pay for... Uh, medical, we had to take them to school, we had to do each and everything which we could not even do. So that's when we came to learn about biblical adoption and foster care ministries. So, having known all this, then I went back home and then I was uh, in my church and then I was able to teach this someone for three months in my church. And then finishing that, I never even knew that on that day uh, that I was going that I was going to ask the church to be able to come up and take over the children. But that morning, the spirit of the Lord spoke to me and told him that this is the right time and this is the right season for you to teach about this. I had a different sermon altogether. So I told my elders that this is what we are going to do. So I told them that I feel leading by the spirit to do this. And then I did it. I told the church that we've been learning much about ABCD, about adoption and foster care ministries in our church. And we want to take up a step now. We really want to take in action. So I asked whoever felt like wanting to be part of it to come out. So I brought up the 17 children. By that time, we had 17. So I, I asked them to bring the 17 out. And then they all came out, stood there. We prayed for them. And then I told the, the parents uh, that whoever feels to call, uh, whoever feels the call of the Lord upon your life to come and take in your child, better come over here. So I saw fifth, uh, I saw uh, 17 families coming out. Mm. And then they took in all the children. And then by that time, we left the service having no orphanage center again. That's mm. when we closed it because we had no one to live in. And then uh, uh, that is how the passion started up now uh, i mean how that's how our passion was raised up to even to 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 be able to to care for more right. so so all the children were taken in and then i had no more like rent bill rent uh utility and all medical and everything because uh, the parents have been taking care of that and then we take care of school fees probably some other medical if at all it's it's a major but the parents have been doing their great work of taking care of these children ever since that time until now well as we talked about before the interview that was just a a story that's uh, full of twists and turns that uh you know really formed a man that is doing um so many great things uh in this world today and uh, Kelly, I just want to hear from you just what you thought about um, what you heard and just the life that uh, Daniel has lived and continues to live. I just think about that this, before he was a man, he was a child. And that this, the the things that he described 
happened to him as a little boy. And that that, as an adoptive mom, I think of my son who that easily could have been his story, um, especially being born in, in Africa and just the, the re- harsh reality of, of the life that many kids face around the world and just how, you know, we can easily gloss it over, I think. And we don't, we can think about how these things don't really happen because we don't really hear about them. And so just to have the context of hearing the story of at the age of 12, he was on his own. And just, I mean, when you just let that kind of rest on you for a minute, and I think of my, you know, 10 year old son or my 13 year old daughter, and I think I cannot imagine what they would do if they were on their own to to fend for themselves and to provide for themselves. And so just how God has worked and just in his life, but also just remembering that this is still the reality of millions of children. Right. And, and to hear, and you'll hear out there, you uh, folks listening out there, you'll hear next week, the, the rest of the story, so to speak. Um, but, uh, yeah, to, to, to think about that, just the, to think about not just being on the streets for a few days or like running away, but like literally thinking, how do I function? How do I fend for myself um, in every aspect? Uh, it's, it's just incredible. But to, to see how he can now empathize in ways that you and I never could. Um, and with children who are presumably going through similar, if not the same thing, in a lot of ways. So it's just really cool to see how God uses men and women who have been through that to be able to help those who are really kind of the same person at a different time. Um, I agree. And I think it really just hits home when you've, when you've seen this uh, with your own eyes, but also if that's not something you're able to do to really be able to hear these stories and just, and just let it rest on you and really let it sink in um, and hopefully give you a different perspective moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so Kelly, we, we didn't get yet because it was part one. We didn't get to the question about the books that, uh, you know, and, and different information that uh, Daniel's been able to synthesize. And, and so I, I was just hoping to hear from you a little bit about what you've been reading or what you've been listening to lately that uh, is, is really kind of informing your, your mind on, on these issues. Cool. Yeah, I've been reading a book called The Whole Brain Child uh, by Daniel Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson. And you may have heard of other books that they've written called No Drama Discipline. I know you're reading that or have read that. And I've just kind of become a brain geek, I think, and just the development and how um, the brain is formed and how experience and things um, dictate how our brain continues to make connections. And so this is just kind of the how we can use everyday occurrences um, with our kids to help really bring about emotional intelligence as they grow up and to help integrate the two parts of their brain um, so that they are, you know, when you look at a tantrum from a two-year-old, you kind of have a perspective of what's going on in the brain and how can we help make that left brain and right brain kind of connect through, through this situation. Yeah, I, I've, like you said, I've been able to read a little bit about, uh, or a little bit of Daniel Siegel's work as well. And what I really like is about what they, how they write is how they are real about their struggles. 
it's not just this expert that's telling you all the ways that you are wrong and you're doing it wrong and you need to do X, Y, and Z and you have the perfect child. They're very realistic about it to say, this will likely help you in a lot of ways, but every child is different. And um, No Drama Discipline is the book that I was able to read. I have Whole Brain Child on my list and I look forward to reading it. Um, but what, I, what I've learned through them is, man, I've blown it in a lot of ways. Um, but it, there's hope. And I think, you know, Whole Brain Child, Switch on Your Brain, several books that I've read in the last couple of years just on the plasticity of the brain that it is never too late to start, you know, these different things that we can be doing to love our children better, to love our spouses better, to love our friends better, and really to be healthier human beings. Um, and so I've really appreciated these books as well. Yeah, the subtitle is 12 Revolutionary Strategies to Nurture Your Child's Developing Mind. And so it's very practical, very hands-on. And so I highly, highly recommend it. Well, folks, uh, this is another great episode um, of with a great interview. And I look forward to next uh, week when you're able to hear the rest of the story from Daniel Cogwa. Um, until then, um, I just I hope and pray that you're able to engage this conversation in real ways every day. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. And for all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. If you're in business, you probably have a website, but can your site handle your growth? How many visitors before your site slows down or crashes? What about storage and data security? From web hosting to virtual servers, Pair Networks provides the online infrastructure you need to start, grow, and flourish. When it comes to security and updates, don't worry, we've got you covered. Our 24-7 U.S.-based customer support is the best in the industry. No frustrating chatbots or sitting on hold for hours. Check out Pair.com today to learn more. That's P-A-I-R dot com.